Scriptures. We are reading The Radical Disciple. This month is a part of our Form and Fire, and we pick this book on purpose because it's both good and short. Short. So you can read it. Okay? So pick that up. It's on Amazon. Um, we'll be discussing it first week of April, but um, just wanted to remind everybody about that. I also want to pray for the offering, which I like to do this every week because we give to the Lord. With most of it's coming in online these days, but at the same time, it's, it's meaningful. It's our worship. So, Lord, we just bless all that we give to you, Lord. I pray that you would consecrate it for your use. And, Lord, let it expand your kingdom and fill this place. Fill, just bless it, Lord, with your presence and your direction, Lord, and give the leadership of this church wisdom um, in using it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a quick, quick message today, very quick, and we're going to be moving in that direction. Um, it's been an interesting year. It's been an interesting week for me. It's been an inter- There's a lot of things that have been going on, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, a couple weeks ago we mentioned, you know, our congregation was touched as Lisa's mom passed away from COVID, and then Pastor Brown at Builders of the Faith, his mom just passed away. I was at the funeral yesterday. Um, and uh, and also in my family, uh, my wife Carrie's not here today because she's over with her family. Her dad had a stroke later in the, the week. And it's still too early to know the severity of that. I would ask you to pray if you can, you know, that the doctors are still giving a range of... He might, rec- he might be able to recover, but it also might be a major life adjustment, you know. So there's just a lot of that type of thing going on. You know, we've, we've been encountering over the last year a lot of stress from disease and all this kind of thing. And, and I think so what I'm meaning about this is wanting to repeatedly come back to this idea of how do we trust God in suffering? What do we do with that? Because this kind of stuff tends to wreck people's faith. So I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into this. And I'm going to move through it quickly. But kids, most of this verse is about or most of this message is about Psalm 23. And I have a coloring sheet in the back that I got online last night. It's really nice. So if you want to be doing that, it literally covers the whole psalm, which we're going to get to at the end. So get one of those. And if you're a 50-year-old kid, you can still color. It's okay. So, Or older. We don't discriminate here. But let me pray. Father, I pray that you would bless these words, that we would um, encounter you, and you'd speak to our hearts and change our lives in your precious name. Amen. Well, this message is called, Nevertheless, and the Lord is my shepherd. It's kind of two, two titles, Nevertheless, and the Lord is my shepherd, and it's going to draw on a lot of different Bible verses, so it's kind of topical in the sense that we're focusing on trusting God, um, and, but I'm going to pull from a bunch of different places in the Bible to make a point. We're not going to just work through one scripture like we normally do. So um, we as believers, as we encounter suffering, that can do things to our faith and cause us to question God in different ways. And if we're honest about it, we all struggle with this. And there's an incredible article, which I'm going to quote a, a good chunk of later, that it was written this, this week, it was released, I don't know when it was written. Tim Keller, who's a great theologian pastor out of New York, found out last year, right during the middle of COVID, that he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he looked that up and was like, oh man, this is not, this is a big deal. <laughs> and he had just written a book called like On Death or something like that, about a Christian response to you know, and, and he said, like, in the article, he talks about how he was looking online at the, you know, and, and meanwhile, the book he had just released was, like, sitting on, he's like, I probably, like, I can't look at that right now, I can't read that. And this article is about him as a, he's been a professional Christian pastor person for, like, 50 years, a great thinker and all this kind of stuff, 
encountering this person, and he's talked to people about dying for all that time, and now it's personal, and he's like, okay, how much of this do I actually believe, and you know, all that kind of thing, and he has some incredible reflections in this article, and I'd highly encourage you all to, to read it. Um, but we're going to be talking about death, we'll be talking about sickness, and how do we encounter these things, and what do we do about it? So, several points. First, um, first and foremost, I want to make just a, this, this point, that Jesus is familiar with suffering. In Isaiah 53, when it's prophesying about the Messiah, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That God, when we bring to him our struggles and these things, he's not unaware. He knows what's going on. He knows what it feels like he was there. And when you see this come out and the response to it that Jesus models in the night before he's crucified, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. And you see this in Luke, 30, Luke 22, 39 through 44. I'll read it here. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives and he, as he was accustomed. He, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying this. Now listen to this. This is Jesus, God in human flesh. He's perfect. He's a sinless person. And this is what he says. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So this is God struggling through this same sort of thing. So I want to just make a couple points with this. Like he's, he's, ask, he's, he's, he's verbalizing the fact he doesn't like what he's about to experience. When he's talking about the cup, he's making a biblical allusion to the wrath of God, and, and he's about to encounter the cross and death and separation from God and all these sorts of things. For the sake, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured that for us because he knew that this would bring salvation to the world. So it was worth it in his mind, but it's not something he enjoyed, he wanted to do, in the sense of this was pleasure or anything like that. And... But in spite of all of this struggle, and he's so like, affected by this that his, his sweat is becoming like blood. So this is not like a lightweight thing. He's not like, I'll... Other times he goes, I'm going to pray that you... Get, you know, <laughs> There's times like when he's talking to a dead guy to raise him, okay? He says in front of him, like, God, I know you always hear me, but I'm going to have to speak this way so these people get what's going on. <laughs> I know you always hear me, but, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what is even going on here. He's not... He's away from everyone. He doesn't even want to be around anyone. He's struggling at that deep of a level, and he's asking God, if it's possible, take this thing from me. Yet, nevertheless, your will not mine be done. And he's kind of paraphrasing a little bit of what we call the Lord's Prayer, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's surrendering himself to the Father's will no matter what. He always says he did what he saw the Father doing. The second point, so Jesus is familiar with suffering. So he's not, when you talk to God about it, it's not like he doesn't know what it feels like. Okay. The second point is this. Jesus promised suffering. In John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not outside of me. He's not promising peace just to everyone. He's like, through me you can have peace because in this world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, I've taken care of things, and if you trust me, you can have peace in spite of the fact that you will encounter difficult things. He does not say you will not encounter difficult things. This is a huge point. Because we tend to start to think that he meant I won't encounter difficult things. And even Tim Keller, he admits that he started to think that way. You know, it's, 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 it's the natural slipping you know, that you can get into. So 
It's not like you're bad or unique to think that way. That's what we all, we all struggle with it. Matthew 16, 24, 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for, my, for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So here we have an existential crisis of, you know, this struggle and we are constantly trying to save our life, and we're losing it. This is where Tim Keller's article really shines. His article is called Growing in My Faith in the Face of Death. And I just brought out a couple quotes here. They're a little bit long, but I'm going to read them in case most of you don't go read it. But it was in the Atlantic, Growing in My Faith in the Face of Death. I recommend you read it. But here's, here's one I pulled out, and he's talking about facing death and struggle. A significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a, at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. Before my diagnosis, I had seen this in people of many faiths. One woman with cancer told me years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Cancer killed her God. Now, he's not being critical of her. He's just saying this is what happens to people. And he's saying killed her God because her God wasn't the king of kings and lord of lords we were just talking about. It was something she'd imagined. And it's something we all can tend to do, you know, make God in our image or this sort of thing. He continues on here. Paul Brand, an orthopedic surgeon, spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in the U.S. In the, and this is now him talking, Paul Brand. In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. He wrote in his recent memoir, Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any, than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. But why is it that people in prosperous modern societies seem to struggle so much with the existence of evil, suffering, and death? In his book, The Secular Age, a philosopher, Charles Taylor, wrote that while humans have always struggled with the ways and justice of God, until quite recently, this is important, listen to this, until quite re- recently, no one had concluded that suffering made the existence of God implausible. For millennia, people held a strong belief that their own inadequacy or sinfulness and did not hold the modern assumption that we all deserve a comfortable life. Moreover, Taylor has argued, we have become so confident in our powers of logic that we that if we cannot imagine any good reason that suffering exists, we assume that there can't be one. A lot, a lot of us do this. I do this a lot. But if there's a, but if there's a gr- God great enough to merit your anger over the suffering you witness or endure, then there is a God great enough to have reasons for allowing it that you can't detect. It is not logical to believe in an infinite God and still be convinced that you can tally the sums of good and evil as he does, or to grow angry that he doesn't always see things the, your way. Taylor's point is that people say their suffering makes their faith in God impossible, but it, is in, but it is in fact their overconfidence in themselves and their abilities that sets them up for anger, fear, and confusion. We always think we know better than God. This is why I say, nevertheless. Jesus is honest about the feeling. He's like, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done, you know? But here's another little nugget that he has in here about not trying to make this world into heaven. He says, To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, which is his wife, and I discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. Remember we said about saving your life, you lose it, lose your life, you find it. 
This is a key to how that works. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdened with the demands no longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. You hear about like somebody getting married and you know and they like you complete me and it's like that's not that's not fair expectations of your spouse. Like they can't do that. And so it's like that's not going to work out at some point. You know what I mean? Maybe you'll catch on that that's not how this is supposed to go or uh, whatever reality hits. But the point is when we try to make this world into heaven it will constantly, we will constantly be struggling to keep it, constantly in fear of losing it, and constantly disappointed that it isn't. And that isn't what God is promising at all. And so there's so much freedom in if we can just grasp the fact that, like, in this world we'll have tribulation, but be a good cheer. He's overcome the world. We don't have to be bothered by it at the same level. Thessalonians talks about when people die. He's like, look, guys, I need you to know this stuff so that you don't mourn for those who pass the way unbelievers do. Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to return with the people that have died and fallen asleep. And we don't have to... It's obviously still sad. We are, it's like The grief is real, guys. That's right. But we don't grieve the same way. Number three, Jesus promises to take care of things. He is our shepherd. Jesus describes himself in John 10 as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know... My sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not in the sheep pen. I must bring them also. And they tilt. I'm skip some of this. Um, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And so Jesus, Jesus is a trustworthy shepherd. He's, a, he's the only shepherd that's worth trusting. And because of this, not like he talks about, like, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. There's this kind of knowing that's very important that, you know, there's ways we act about people we don't know that well. And then there's ways we act around people we know well. And they're different. You might clean your house differently if the, the people you don't know well are coming around. Or you might talk differently. But then when you know. The people that really know you, you, you're yourself. That's the kind of knowing Jesus, you know, when we know him and he knows us, it develops a different kind of trust. He can trust us with things that he's like, oh, okay, I can trust you with the real things now. But the real things can be difficult. And we say, we do trust you back. But we also have to keep in mind, this is a, this is a, very, this is a very difficult thing that Tim Keller struggles with, we all struggle with, about keeping our hope in the kingdom, which is to come. Jesus says the kingdom is among you. So then there's one sense, wherever the Holy Spirit's activity is, is like a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But the full realization of that is to come when Jesus returns and things are right. (laughs) And we know that they'll be right, and we can be okay with that. Or okay with the junk now, because... We know it's going to be all right in the end. And that God can take care of this stuff. Fleming Rutledge writes about this, talking about like God's ability to pull it all together. She says, It must be said to the strongest possible terms, in no ways 
does this emphasis on divine agency, which means God's ability to do things, you know. So um, this emphasis on divine agency means that there is nothing for us to do. So you're saying that because God can do everything, it doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. She's like, um, or that our activity is meaningless. Our lives are not meaningless. What it means, rather, is that human activity points to the future reign of God and participates in it proleptically, which means like anticipating. Like the kind of thing like we're involved in getting, like we're excited about Christmas or something like that. You know what I mean? Like there's things we do getting excited about it, you know, but we're mostly looking forward to the, you see what I'm saying? Like the, the gifts are there under the tree and we're excited about it, but we're not there yet. You see what I'm saying? And it does not, however, make it come to fruition. Only God can complete his purposes. So this trust in God. So that gets to the, the kind of the final point, which is following Jesus or faith is trusting God, not ourselves. Now, this is, <laughs> this is one I struggle with a lot, <laughs> which is, uh, you read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This is kind of like, I don't have like a life verse, but this one comes to my mind a lot correctively. <laughs> trust in the Lord with all your heart, which is trust, which we think of in our culture as a mind thing. And he's saying with your heart. Because the Bible doesn't put that division between heart and mind that we do. You know, He's saying trust in God with everything. Lean not on your own understanding. Well, <laughs> that's where it gets me. Because I'm totally fine with trusting God as long as I understand it. Like, I'll trust you. So how does this work? And they go, oh, it works this way. Go, okay, I got it. So what am I trusting there? Am I trusting God or am I trusting my own understanding? Now that might look a whole lot to the way I can present it to you or even myself. Like, I'm trusting God because God explained to me this thing and I'm trusting it. And they're like, you are literally trusting your... Like, this is exactly what it's saying not to do. Trust in the Lord with all, with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And what do I do now? Is my life meaningless? In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Does he say he will make your paths comfortable? No. Pastor Brown yesterday was speaking at his own mother's funeral, okay? His own mother's funeral. And as we just discussed, she is someone who's following the Lord. So he's, he knows he'll see her again in the resurrection and the kingdom of God to come. But he's sad. And that's right to be. But he quoted Psalm 32, 8. He said, I, where God says, I will instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God, and he said these three things. That from that... I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, and I will counsel you with my, love, with my loving eye on you. And the loving eye part really stuck out to me. He said three things. God knows the best. God knows the end. And God is more than this moment. So I just wrote those three things down. This is the kind of stuff we have to remember when we are the one going through something. And that our relationship is as a follower. We're following. And like there's language here that requires movement, and it can't be defined by a single snapshot. And faith that God has the best plan. So a couple, two, two little things. Don't do this. There's kind of like, I would, <laughs> like, beginner Christian stuff, medium Christian, like, and then true, like, following Jesus stuff. I, I don't know if this is helpful language for anyone, but a lot of us get stuck in this middle category. Like, the first one is, like, I believe there's God. I, I, I want to do the Jesus-y thing, and that's fine or whatever. However, my entire life will be defined my own way, and everything I do is something I'm, you know, it's not really Christian. It's just got Christian language on it. You're like, okay. And then you get to this medium thing. Like, I'm actually going to try it, but then I'm going to, it really matters to me that other people think I'm spiritual and that I can keep up this sort of thing. 
a lot of us get stuck here for, for a long time. True faith in Jesus is just kind of simply faith in Jesus. Like, so what I'm saying is like, don't do this. There's no need to pretend we understand something we don't. Like Tim Keller said, he's like, God may have a reason. Well, God has a reason for things. But it may be so incalculable. And like, like, have you guys watched Hidden Figures or something like that? You know, like this is a movie about these women that are like, they called them computers because they computed things. And they're talking, this is a movie now. So don't even think you're getting like a degree or something. But none of us even know what they're talking about. And they're on paper calculating like, if we launch a rocket and do this, that it'll do that and gravity and all this crazy stuff. So people can understand that. I don't, you don't, whatever. But there are people in this world that understand that stuff. God is beyond that, <laughs> considerably. And so what I'm trying to say is, you go, there's no reason for this to happen. It's like, God could literally go, there's actually like, I have 4,000 reasons for this. But you're not able to understand, and you may not be able to understand them ever. I'm not going to promise that we will stand before God one day and everything will suddenly make sense. That might happen. And maybe in his mercy, he gives us answers sometimes. But there's no, it's not logical to assume that we could understand all these reasons or that we could demand them of God. This is something that's very difficult for us to really reckon with. So there's no need to pretend that we understand something we don't. Because what we're actually saying is, I don't understand this. And I don't like it, but I trust you. This is my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. You know, Jesus probably did understand. He did understand what he was doing, but we don't. So we're not him, but you get what I mean. So he, he's saying, I don't like what I'm about to do. And if it's possible, I would like to not do it. However, not my will, but you. I submit to your will. I don't think that then we also need to assume that everything that's happening in the world is something that God literally wants in the same way that we want things. Okay, so... We're in a fallen world, and the Bible talks a lot about the work of the enemy, and there are things like that. So you need to filter that in there, too. So don't just go, well, everything that happens is exactly what God wants. And so that can be faith crippling as well. And then the third thing I have is, like, don't try to help people when they're struggling through something by just telling them, well, God has a reason, or just have faith or something like that, because it's not something you can pull out like that. You know, sometimes somebody might need that. So I'm not going to say categorically don't do that, but generally speaking... This is something we need to do ourselves. And it's like working out a muscle that when you need it, you're ready. So it'd be kind of like to say to somebody, hey, pick up this 400-pound thing. And you're like, well, maybe I could if well, 400 is too much. But, you know, this very heavy thing. They're like, maybe if I would worked on it, I could do that. But you're just telling me right now, pick up this really heavy thing. It's like, that's not really constructive talk, you know. And so my advice would be stay away from that in that moment. But encourage those around you yourself to practice this thinking, this muscle, so that you're ready when you encounter it, because you're going to. And that we need to be looking forward. Kayla, come on up here and we'll play this song. Um, this isn't the end. Um, Robert, Pastor Robert Brown said a quote I liked. He said, God is more than this moment. And he was speaking to himself. He was speaking to all of us, but he was speaking to himself. This is a man who just lost his mother. And he's saying, God is more than just this moment. And it made me think of something that I grew up um, my dad's a cinematographer, and um, I'm a musician. And it's an interesting thing because art is weird, and people who make art are weird, <laughs> and um, generally speaking. But 
both of those art forms, um, like if you take a picture, you have a picture. And you can look at it. And you can go away and come back and look at it again. You can go away and come back and look at it again. You could print it. It has a way of existing. The painting's the same way. This mural on this wall is like that. It's static, which doesn't mean it can't communicate deep emotional things. It's just it, the way it works is static. Now, music and movies require a time element to be perceived, okay? Like, you can't take one one frame grab from a movie and be like, that's it, you know? Because it's just not possible to be perceived that way. It literally requires time. Like, this song is five minutes long. In order to perceive that song, it takes five minutes of time at least to perceive it all. And so it can't be reflected on in a moment. It can't be interacted with in a moment. You can, you can only be where you are in it, you know, 30 minutes into Star Wars or whatever, you know. But there's a whole movie there. And when he said God is more than this moment, that really stuck to me that way, that we need to be thinking about ourselves, about our relationship with God, the following. Following doesn't happen in the same way. You don't have a photo of that. Following is an action that requires forward thinking and forward motion. So we're looking forward. And so I'm going to read. I told you this is called The Lord is My Shepherd. I'm going to finally end by reading this. I'm going to read two versions of it. The King James Version, which is the famous one we all memorize, or you might memorize if you're a kid, or if you buy something that's on the wall, it probably is a King James Version. Then I also have this other newer translation made by a scholar. His name is um, Robert Alter. Because his did, he's like a lifelong... Hebrew scholar, and he made this tr- this translation of the Bible, or the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, <laughs> sorry, um, and he takes out, or like, he, what it is, like a half step, and then I'll have commentary underneath of why this and why that, and I, and I was reading his version, and he said this, Psalm 23.3, which is traditionally translated, he restores my soul, this is what he said about that, he said, although he restoreth my soul as time-honored, The Hebrew, nefesh, does not mean soul, but life breath or life. He said the image is of someone who has almost stopped breathing and is revived back to life. And I think that that really summed up kind of the whole psalm in that way. So I'm going to read this over you, over myself. Then we're going to sing it a little bit. Then I'll invite you to sing along because we know this song. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I'm going to read this other version. And he made one other point also that I think we can... He certainly knows a lot more about this than I do. But he said that it's actually better at the end to understand... I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, linguistically, not eschatologically. That, you know, as I've always heard it and always thought of it as, you know, I'll dwell in the house, like this is a sort of a 
future kingdom of God sort of thing. And in a way it is. But he was actually saying that, you know, it's really talking about now. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord now. Like I'm trusting him now, you see. It's not necess- It's not specifically speaking about, you know, then, but we can use it both ways. So here's his version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In grass meadows he, make, he makes me lie down. By quiet waters guides me. My life he brings back. He leads me on pathways of justice for his name's sake. Though I walk in the veil of death's shadow, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, it is they that comfort they console me. You set a table before me in the face of my foes, and you moisten my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let but goodness and kindness pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days. So, Father, I pray that you would bring these words to life in our lives. We would dwell in your house for many long days. The rest of the band, why don't you all come up here? And Father, I pray that you would fill this place with the sense of your presence, your holiness. Lord, we repent for where we haven't trusted you. We repent for where we haven't followed you. We repent for where we have not been good sheep who know your voice. Lord, we do trust you as the good shepherd. God, I just ask for that peace that passes understanding to fill our hearts and to fill this place. In Jesus' name. So if you stand and sing this with us.